Good morning. Good morning. All right. Would you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? We were looking at that last week. Um, <clears throat> we said, we'll, even though this was not what was planned, we said this, this is where I, 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 I was, God spoke to me, and I, I was led to believe that this is what I, uh, he'd have me share with you. And the uh, key verse for today is in verse 26, verse 26 of chapter 1. And um, it says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I want to do a quick review of what we did last Sunday so that we can connect with what we're doing today. And like I said, the one thing that caught my attention was that it was called the Church of God in Corinth. This church that we tend to often write off, it's called the Church of God in Corinth. And Paul uses that term again and again in this episode. He uses that term most in this when he writes to the Corinthian church. The first time, I didn't mention that last time, but the first time this phrase, Church of God, is mentioned is in Acts. In Acts chapter 20 and 28, it says, which he obtained, the Lord Jesus Christ, or God, which, which he obtained, the Church of God, which he obtained with his own blood, is his church. And then we looked at the greeting and the thanksgiving, but the many things, like seven things that he's thankful for, for the Corinthian church. We would have said, like, what is there to thank? But he recognizes that this is the church of God, and he, and he is thankful. And then what he does is, uh, we know that he, there are certain issues that he is dealing with, and he prioritizes it. And we saw that in, in verse 10. I'm going to ask... Uh, Praveen to uh, read for me into verse 10. 1 Corinthians verse 1, chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Thank you. So, so he addresses this disunity and the division in the church, and he gives it the most uh, importance because the next four chapters he's dealing with this. And so he addresses, he, he first tells them the position in Jesus Christ, but he doesn't leave them there. He moves them on to correction, and this is what he first addresses. And so that's the journey. And the question that we ask is, like, why are there divisions in the church? I mean, church is not supposed to be a place where there are divisions, but that happens. And so as we look at the Corinthian church, there are things that we can take away and we can take comfort and hope and joy in knowing that this is the church of God. And so the solution, we saw that last Week two, the solution is Paul brings them to the foot of the cross, the church of God at Corinth, and he brings them to the cross. All right. Now, the uh, I do want to say the impact of this division and this disunity, which is there, is seen through the uh, through the book, through the epistle. 
1 Corinthians can be divided into five parts. And in each of those, so the first one, the chapters 1 to chapter 4, is the division among people. And, and I have a quote here by Smith, and he says, the 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to chapter 421, we have his, that is Paul's, noble and impassioned protest against this fourfold rending of the robe of Christ. So he's passionate. He's feeling this division within the church, and he writes about it. But then in chapters 5 to 7, he speaks about this sexual impurity, and we saw that also last week, saying that how in the Gnostic understanding, they divided the body and the spirit. They say you can do what you want in the body, and you know, as long as the spirit is okay. So there's that division in their understanding of who they are as a person. And then you get to chapter 8 and to chapter 10. It's about the division that they had in the liberty of Christ. Like, can I do this or can I not do that? And so they have that kind of a division. In chapter 11 to 14, it speaks about the corporate gathering, the division about worship. And in chapter 15, it's about resurrection. We, we looked at that chapter today during the Remembrance Hour and how they were divided. Did the resurrection really happen or did it not happen? Like, like you know, resurrection is the important thing. And so bringing them to the cross. And we concluded last week by saying cross of Christ, which is the picture of punishment, of shame, of, of all of those, has become for us a symbol of love a symbol of love that unites, a symbol of love that because of these divisions, the only thing that can unite us is at the foot of the cross and because of Jesus Christ and the love that he has shown us. So whether the eloquent or the wise or the traditionalist doesn't matter, all of them find the unity in Christ. And so we said the centrality of Christ unites us, the cross compels us, and the love of Christ binds us. The centrality of Christ unites us. The cross compels us. And the love of Christ unites us. And that's my endeavor today to stay with the cross. I want to say what does that mean to being a cross-centric church? A cross-centric church. How, how, what does that mean to us? And and as we say, the, if you look at this epistle, the word cross, the actual word cross is only used twice in, in chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, used only twice. But as you read through it, you can see the shadow of the cross. And I want to uh, take us uh, through that. And the two lessons that I, I believe that we can uh, take away is one is that the gospel without the cross is powerless and foolish. We'll see that. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ without his cross, it's powerless and foolish. The second, the lives, lives, our lives lived without the cross. Our lives lived without the cross is dangerous and divisive. Is dangerous and divisive. The cross the centrality of the cross is what I want to talk to us about. But I want to talk to us about the two crosses that are evidenced here. One is the cross of Christ and the other is the cross of the believer. The cross of Christ and the cross of believer. So it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, his cross, that makes it uh, uh, 
you know, unites us, gives us a symbol, but there's also this believer's cross that we want to look at. So let's first look at the uh, cross of Christ. So would you read for me verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17? Thank you. You see, I want you to know the cross of Christ is sufficient. First thing I want us to notice is the cross of Christ is sufficient, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. It's sufficient. You don't need to add anything to it. I've got a quote here by C.H. Spurgeon. This is what he says. Listen to this. He says, they would paint the rose, enamel the lily, Add whiteness to the snow and brightness to the sun with their wretched candles. They would help us see the stars. Oh, superfluity of naughtiness. The cross of Christ is sublime, sublimely simple. To adorn it is to uh, dishonor it. To adorn it is to dishonor it. And Paul is careful to practice what he preaches. He's saying, I don't want to add anything to the cross lest I empty it of the power. We read that in verse 17. And if you get to chapter 2, we won't read that, but chapter 2, verses 1 to verse 5, he shows how he came, not with loftiness of speech, not with grandeur, or whatever it is. In verse 2, he says, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, and he ends that, passage in verse 5 and he says what happens to us what will happen to us when we empty the cross of Christ of its power what will happen he says in verse 5 that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God that your faith if the gospel that was presented to him was emptied of its power then your faith would rest on the wisdom of man not on the power of God and that was important. So he, what he does is he grounds the message of Corinth in the cross of Christ. And his goal is so that their faith is grounded in the power of God. And it's important. Uh, what Paul is saying is that the light of the gospel must shine on the cross. The light of the gospel must shine on the cross and not on the messenger. He must increase and I must decrease. He was careful not to discard or to dilute. It's like the doctor who knows that there is only one medication that is, that is okay for that, for that sickness. And the way you minister, you don't want uh, administer, sorry, the way you administer that medicine, you shouldn't dilute it, shouldn't do anything. It's not the problem of the medicine if the doctor doesn't administer it right. And Paul is saying that I don't want to take away uh, or empty it from the power of the cross in verse 17. Really, in the truth of it, nothing can empty of its power. We sing that song, the blood will not lose its power. But yet what Paul is saying is the gospel that he would present apart from the cross, apart from the power of the cross, would be powerless, would be futile. And so... Uh, he is careful. So we want to say that the cross is the symbol of love. Cross is the symbol of sufficiency in Jesus Christ. But I want you also to read verse 18 and verse 21. Verse 18 and 21. Verse 18 and 21. 
Thank you, brother. So, so we saw it's a symbol of love, it's a symbol of sufficiency, but here it says it's a symbol of the power and the wisdom of God. The cross is the, power, the symbol of power and wisdom of God. I want you to notice four things in that passage that we looked at. One, it confounds. Second, it convicts. Third, it's countercultural, and fourth, it's contrary. Okay, I want, we'll go through these, but there's four things: it confounds, it convicts, it's countercultural, and it's contrary. So, verses 19 to 20, uh, as you read, and then 21, the first part of that, very specifically, it says it confounds the wisdom of the wise. It's impossible to understand the wisdom of God with using the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world will not help us understand the wisdom of God. No wonder we see so many who who are who are wise, who are uh, who the world uh, recognizes as philosophers or whatever. Struggle. Einstein. We've quoted this many times. Einstein. He would look at the sky and says, "Yeah, it is not possible for." all of that to come of its own. He understood that there was a divine power, but he could never fathom that that divine power is a person who would be willing to have a relationship with puny men as us. The wisdom of man and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God neither does it match up nor is it a match for the kingdom of, for the wisdom of God. Wisdom of God, neither does it match up, nor is it a match with the kingdom, sorry, with the wisdom of God. I want us to understand that. And so, as you see that it confounds, but we're thankful that it also convicts the latter part of verse 21. We see that it convicts. It says, but it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It convicts those who believe. What the world considers foolish, he uses that to convict. The power of the cross has the power to save those who believe. It it confounds the wise. It convicts the foolish, the weak, the powerless who believe. Then verses 22 to 25, it says the cross of Christ is countercultural. To the Jews, it says it's a stumbling block. You see, for a Jew, uh, 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 another Jew on the cross is a shame. A weak Messiah on the cross didn't make sense. It was unacceptable. For the Greeks who sought wisdom and knowledge, it was foolish. How could death bring life? How could somebody who died, how could that have any impact on us. They saw the cross as the ultimate defeat. We looked at that last week briefly, but I want to bring this, bring this back again and understand the context of the Corinthian church. It's important. They had three things that we need to remember. One is called the patronage. Pat, patronage. So one is the patronage, where they looked for patrons or patrons. They would look for patrons and say, I would, you know, 
the, the like in some of the religions, even now they have this patron saint and all of that, right? So they had this patronage. They look for the rich and the noble and all of that. Uh, and say, that is what I want to become, you know, so they would come under the patronage of those people. Those guys would have this public display of all the grandiose things that they have done, all the achievements that they have done. It would be in the Corinthian street. People would know who they are. And then there was also the rhetoric. So not just the patronage, but also the rhetoric. The orators, the ones who would speak, the scholarly and all of those. And, and uh, they were the rock stars of this world of that time. They were the ones who the parents would say, yeah, become like that person. And then there was this social mobility. That was the third part. When they says nobody wanted to be a nobody. Everybody wanted to go up and be somebody. So that's the Corinthian culture. Right Now, Paul is coming into this Corinthian culture. He doesn't say, okay, you, you want patron? Okay, I'll show you Christ. He doesn't say any of those, you know, uh, those comparisons is not what he does. He comes not as one who shows himself as the patron or as one who is the orator or one who says, I am somebody. He comes in his weakness. It's just so countercultural to the Corinthian culture. They're like, what is this? No wonder they had these divisions among, you know, oh, I'm like Apollos, I'm, I'm in Peter's camp. And, uh, you see, now when you, when, you, when you see the context of what Paul comes into and how he presents himself, he says, lest I empty it of the power of God to save, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He was so mindful that the light of that, or whatever he's speaking, that light would shine on the cross, that shameful event. That's what he wanted. So he, he, he didn't fit the mold, and he didn't want the gospel to fit the mold. And <clears throat> I think it's a good lesson for us sometimes because as we seek to hear from God, as we seek to know what is it that God is seeking, uh, speaking, sorry, You'd be very careful not to be distracted by the messenger or by the lack of his uh, communication skill or lack of his oratory or whatever it is. But it says, Lord, speak to me. Your word is powerful. If the person, the messenger, is careful not to bring light upon himself. The word of God is powerful to convict. It's powerful to... um, to uh, condemn, it's powerful to, to uh, confound, as we saw. And so James 1.21 says, Therefore put away our filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. You see the God's word? The implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's the word that saves it's the word that saves. And Paul is therefore addressing this. And now he sees this, this Corinthian culture is kind of seeping into the church. There's need to have different levels based on their abilities or whatever that's coming into the church. And he says, no, 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 let's get back to the cross. It's the cross that needs to be the central aspect of the church. The central aspect must be 
the cross. Verse 26. All right, so we, we, we sing here about this cross of Christ. We say that it was contrary. It was, you know, it, it confounded and all of that. Now we see here that it's contrary. It's contrary. You see what's happening? It says not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God, you know, oftentimes you read that phrase, but God, and we know there's something happening there. We read that from Ephesians 2. Oftentimes we look at that Ephesians 2 and he says, but God, and we are thankful for it. And that appears again here, but God. This symbol of love that unites is also the one that divides. The symbol of love that unites is the one that divides because the cross of Christ, it says here that the wise of the world who reject, it divides them from the low and the despised who believe. Not many were wise, not many of us were powerful, not many of us were of nobility, but God chose what is foolish to shame the world that is wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things, uh, bring to nothing, sorry, things that are that no human being might boast in the presence of God. <coughs> presence of God. But I want you to notice what, when you read that, the, the difference, there's a difference between not many versus any. It's not saying that just because you're rich or just because you're noble or just because you're powerful that you cannot get saved or God is not calling you. It's not many. It's because we tend to be so impressed with our own selves, with our, with our you know, riches or whatever it be, that it's... Uh, like the Lord said, it's difficult for a rich man to come, th- uh, come into the kingdom of God. It's like the camel going th- through the eye of a needle. It's not many. Not, not any. And what that tells me is that it's not based on wealth, or not based on societal status, not based on your birth, but because of the fact that you, were be- that you would believe in this event in this person, the cross of Christ, the powerful uh, symbol that it is, that it will divide you from the rest of the world. So the one that unites us is the one that divides us from the world. So what Paul is saying as I read this is saying, listen, your division must not be within the church. That is not where the division ought to be. The division is from the world. We need to get this division right. Not, 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 we were not rich, we were not powerful, none like those Corinthian church, whatever they were trying to do. But the cross of Christ unites those who believe on the person who died on the cross, and it divides and separates those who reject it. No other division is possible. And I you might want to go through the passage, the chapters as you go through, but I'm going to take you towards the end of the, of the episode to 
chapter 15. So if you will turn with me to chapter 15, chapter 15. And I want you to notice here that this symbol, which is a symbol of love, the cross, which is a symbol of love, it's a symbol of sufficiency, it's a symbol of power and wisdom that confounds, convicts, and is countercultural and is contrary, is also a symbol of victory. In chapter 15, we see that it's a, it's a symbol of victory. I'm going to have a brother read from verse 14 and 15 of chapter 15. Uh, verse 14 and 15 of chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 and 15. Thank you, brother. Paul is saying, Paul's preaching is in vain. If there's no resurrection, he would be misrepresenting God, and their faith is in vain, and they're still in the sin, verse 17. And then in verse 19, he says, of all men, both Paul and the Corinthian church, of all men, we are the most miserable. We, if there's no resurrection, we are the most miserable of all the world. But the resurrection changes because it's the symbol of victory. The cross of Christ will not be emptied of its power through ages. It is the symbol of victory. The victorious, to, to, it's because of this fact of resurrection, Paul goes on to write that victory is assured. Even for the Corinthian church, even for the Corinthian church, that there is victory. So the cross of Christ, it's a symbol of love, it's a symbol that unites, it's a symbol of sufficiency, it's a symbol that is contrary, countercultural, all of that, but it's a symbol to us of victory. It's a symbol of victory. But I also want us to look at the fact that it's the believer's cross. There is a cross that we have to carry. Now, this is a cross that is different from that of the Lord. You see, the Lord's cross is a substitute, but the believer's cross is not a substitute. It's supposed to be our experience. It is not that we come and be satisfied with the substitutionary impact and the effect of the cross, but we are to come carrying the cross because the invitation to Christ is an invitation to bear the cross, isn't it? He invites us to bear, bear the cross. Now, I was just thinking about it. You know, uh, you know, they talk about this in the U.S. quite a bit of the Bill of Rights and the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms and all of that. And I was thinking about it, and I was saying, you know, it's, it's not the amendment it's part of the Constitution. It's not something that was changed later to say that we as believers ought to bear the cross. But it's part, it's mandatory, it's part of the original. It's the Constitution that we bear the cross. It's, it's Christ who invites us to the cross. And in Matthew chapter 16 and 24, I just love the way the context is. In 16 and 24, it says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. Right? He says, so he says, you want to be 
Christ's disciple, what you have to do is to deny yourself. You have to bear the cross and then you have to follow him. And the context of this, in this chapter, the two other things that happens is one is Christ is saying, I will build my church. So the, the context is there is this church. And then when Peter says, listen, don't talk about suffering and about death. That's when Jesus says, no, 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 you have to bear your cross. There's two things that comes in where there's building of the church and talks about denial and death is where we find this reference to the believer's cross. So the believer's cross is a privilege for us to carry, but I want us to know that it's a rugged cross. You know the song that we often sing? An old rugged cross, an emblem of suffering and shame. That's the cross that we are, we are to pay. I'll exchange it for a crown. We, we, we sing that glibly, right? And we often sing that. But I want us to recognize that it's an old rugged cross. That, that emblem of suffering and shame that we have been called to. That to trust in Christ crucified is to be identified with him in the humiliation of his death. And we don't do this apart from joy. I mean, this is not that, okay, I'm just like, okay, am I supposed to have joy? No, no. It is indescribable joy. It is full of hope and glory. When you think about the cross and you think about the fact that this person who was hung on the cross is now on the throne. And when he has told me to bear the cross, I bear it to shame sometimes, but not apart from from joy. It may be in weakness. It may be in insults. It may be in hardship. It may be in persecution. It may be in calamities. But it doesn't take away the joy. The cross of Christ and the cross of the believer. That's the paradox the world doesn't understand. The world doesn't understand this because, you see, the 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 cross then for us is a way of life. It's not just an event in history. We think about cross as something that happened 2,000 years ago, and that's true about the cross of Christ. But when it talks about us today, it's something that is to be taken up daily, the believer's cross. The believer's cross. It's, it's, a, it's a place for daily execution, execution of pride, execution of self-reliance, execution of ourself. There is no place on the throne for the self. The self must be on the cross. And I want you to hear me right here because and, uh, uh, if that doesn't happen, if the self is not on the cross but is on, on the throne, then it's high treason against the king of the universe. There's only one person who can be on the throne, which is Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ on the throne, or God on the throne. The cross, therefore, must have this dual impact on our life. The, the cross of Christ and what it represents to us, and the believer's cross as a way of experience. The problems that the Corinthian church were happening because it's lost its dual effect. They were boasting in the wrong things. If you turn, to, if you don't need to turn there, but if you later go and see chapter five and verse six, they were actually boasting in their sec- sexual misconduct. Paul is saying such boasting is not good. 
And so in verse 31, brother, if you can read chapter 1, verse 31 of 1 Corinthians. Let them that boast, boast in the Lord. Being proud of the wrong things in life, it opens up the doorway of reprioritizing the grandness of the gospel and emptying the power of the cross in the Lord. It's interesting. Before this passage where he's talking about division in chapter 4, um, it'll be good to, for us to turn there. I know. Let's just turn there quickly. Chapter 4, from 8 to 11. I'm going to read that out to you. Verse chapter 4 verse 8 to 11. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings and would and what and would that you did reign so that you might share that we might share the rule with you for I thank that God has exhibited us apostles last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men we are fools for Christ's sake but you are wise in Christ we are weak and you are strong you are held in honor but we are in disrepute to the present hour we hunger and thirst and we are poorly dressed and we buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands when reviled we bless when persecuted we endure we when slandered we entreat we have become and are still like the scum of the world and refuse of all things Paul just goes in there and he says, listen, what are the implications of what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, this, this, this death of Jesus Christ on the cross has not released you to fullness and wealth and kingly dignity. You see, what has happened in the life of, of the Corinthian church is that it's lost its crucifying power. The cross had lost its crucifying power. Instead of taking up the cross daily, they were taking the scepter daily. Instead of being on the cross, they were wanting to sit on the throne. Let me read to you a quote by John Piper. It says, They were leaving, leaving in the past what belongs in the present, namely the cross. They were trying to bring into the present what belongs in the future, namely the power and dignity of glorified saints. And the result was that the cross was being emptied of its power to humble. And the inheritance was being contaminated with pride. They had fallen prior, uh, prey to self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. In James 4, 1, it says, what, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Want us to understand an uncrucified self will always get the Christian to sin, but a crucified self will keep him or her close to the cross. So the uh, solution of Paul is the cross, the cross of Christ and the believer's cross. So what's our takeaway? We saw that it's a symbol of love, of God. It's a, pray, it's a place for substitution. The Lord Jesus Christ on that cross. It's the symbol of love. The cross is sufficient. But as a symbol of power, it's the place of salvation. The world will never understand how was it that that cross, that Jew who was flogged and was put on the cross, could be the means of our salvation. It's the power and the wisdom 
of God. No wonder we read, you see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, it says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Those are for you. What God has prepared for you to be able to see and to be able to hear about the majesty and the glories of Christ. The world doesn't understand. No wonder they think it's foolish and weak and powerless and, and they would consider uh, you know, us to be the discards of the society almost. But I want us to understand this. But we have references before and I love this verse in Colossians 2.15. It says, he, that is Lord Jesus Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, the world looked at the Lord Jesus Christ, flogged and put on the cross, and said, what a shameful death. They thought they had done away with him. But that was the, the high moment of victory. For Jesus Christ. He says because he is the one who disarmed the rulers and authorities. He is the one who puts them to open shame by triumphing over them. We reference that like he, it is finished. It is finished. And as the song says, there's the dual effect of it. It is finished. He finished the work. It is finished. Our striving is finished. And, and the, the principalities and the powers of darkness, they are finished. The power of the cross. But I also want to say it's a symbol of God, a symbol of the call of God. Cross is the symbol of the call of God to share in the shame with Christ. That our self and all that we are would never cast a shadow on the cross. Will you rise with me and I want us to uh, sing uh, from the Hosanna 190, 190. But before we sing, I want us to take 30 seconds or so to say, Lord, help us to be cross-centric. It's apart from us, Lord, that we are, that your favor has been shown on us and we reminded ourselves this again and again. But we commit, as you have commanded us, to carry our cross for your glory. Would you take that 30 seconds and pray that prayer, and then we can sing this song.